Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. And much to my surprise, a big moment for me was having somebody I respect in the industry email me shortly after my paper had been published and say, hey, have you seen that this expert in the field that everybody respects has just written a review of 100 plus models all over the world from data all over the world and your model was the best? Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Hey, happy Thursday, Solar Warriors. I am so delighted to have you tune in yet again to explore the career and lessons learned from clean energy executives to inspire and inform your growth and journey. If you are new to Suncast, welcome to our tribe. As you've already heard, I hope that you're going to take information here that helps you grow and enter through the side door, bypass some of those hard-won life lessons from the hundreds of guests we've had on this show. Hey Tribe, rarely has a guest gotten so very specific about the decision matrix of forming a business or a life and really understanding the unique space in which they hold their vision for their business and their growth. The version of the widget that they wanna bring to the world, the way today's guest has done. So I hope that you'll set aside the appropriate time to really dig in. It's such an expansive conversation. Today's entrepreneur, Dr. Nick Enger, found his way to his current job, or rather created his current job, vis-a-vis academia. It's the living, breathing result of his PhD thesis. And we're going to dive into the mind of a brilliant thinker and biohacker, a true process engineer who's not satisfied with the status quo. And I know that you can identify with that because that's why you are here trying to grow yourself. His company, Soulcast, a name I particularly love, provides solar irradiance and power forecasting data to some of the largest IPPs and utilities in the world. We are going to look at how and why he decided to dedicate the last decade of his life to this and why he ended up in Australia, of all places, to work it out. Stick around and you're going to find out too. And hey, if you really love what we're digging into here, I really want you to check out the hundreds of other additional founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and our Energy Tribe newsletter. I don't want you to miss out when we send out what we're doing every week. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today, as I mentioned, Dr. Nick Engerer, the Chief Technology Officer and founder of Soulcast, is gracing us with his presence on the show. Their company is a global solar irradiance and power forecasting data company dedicated to helping you build the solar-powered future. Mr. Engerer holds a PhD in solar irradiance modeling, or perhaps the word is solar radiation. We'll dig into the minutiae there. But forecasting, as many of you think of it, and he's managed a portfolio of $4.5 million in R&D funding to lift his baby out of the ground 
focusing on bridging the gap between science and technology. We're going to dig into what the data and the science has resulted in, but I want to first welcome Nick to the show. Dr. Ingerer, thank you for being here. It is a pleasure to speak with your tribe and all those solar warriors out there. Absolutely. One of the things that I've uh, really enjoyed as we've gotten to know each other is that you, like I, are a podcast junkie. Dr. Nick reached out to me when he was getting ready to travel to uh, Charlotte because it's close to Durham where we have a home. It's taken us a while to really make this, uh, to, to get this conversation going. But we've geeked out on a ton of podcasts. So uh, you guys get ready. We're going to talk not only about his solar experience and how it applies to his life, but Dr. Inger has his own work of art, as it were, uh, a blog on biohacking. So we'll probably do a sidetrack into uh, biohacking for, for life enjoyment and maximization. But first, Dr. Nick, let's get into the origin story of Soulcast. A name, by the way, I think I've mentioned is a fantastic one. It's almost what we called the podcast here. So tell me about that first exposure or foray for you into clean energy and solar power and how you figured out this is really where you were going to try to focus your career. I love that question because so many of these entrepreneurial journeys have distinct moments where we gather insight from our environment and our experience to decide to charge forward on a unique path. And mine was very particular. I moved to Oklahoma to do my master's degree at the University of Oklahoma School of Meteorology. And ever since I was a kid, I'd been fascinated by the weather and in particular severe storms. And I went out there to study severe weather, tornadoes in particular. I did a lot of storm chasing, saw a lot of big storms. It was a great experience. But when I looked at the applicability of my work and the need for increased modeling resolution of tornado genesis, I didn't see the impact I was craving and looking for. And that started a process of personal discovery and insight that revealed to me that there was a really big future in the renewable energy space for people in the atmospheric sciences. And as I looked forward into that, I explored many options. But to me, it became really clear over time and lots of research and meditation that solar energy was the one that felt right and had a very pun intended, bright future, so to speak. And so I made the leap and changed my thesis over to doing work with solar radiation data and solar power modeling. And that was an important transition for me. I didn't know where it would lead. Uh, obviously, with clarity, looking back 2020 now is uh, very, very clear where that those 10 years took me. But it was the right decision in that I decided to follow something I was excited and passionate about and that there was new roads to travel, new, new ways to discover how to apply meteorology to uh, a new field, solar energy. Yeah, and you decided to, as I have often uh, advised folks, seek a subject matter expert rather than maybe thinking, oh, well, what's the best uh, solar program here in the United States, where you and I are both from. Uh, how did you go about deciding where and under whose tutelage you were going to really dig deep on this topic of how to apply this applied science from meteorology to this newfound interest of solar? That's another great leading question down the journey. And what happened is as I looked around at the programs available to me, I knew I wanted to do a PhD. I knew I wanted it to be in an applied 
science space, working on the integration of solar into electricity networks. But the programs hadn't really matured in the United States for that. And in fact, one of the places I was looking to go, Colorado State University, was almost trying to cobble together a project specifically for me because they saw me as talented and ambitious, but they didn't have quite the right fit. And I turned my attention overseas to look for other opportunities and noticed that Australia in 2009 had really started a very strong a program of installing rooftop solar. And it was around 2011 that I found a PhD program at the Australian National University that would allow me to study solar radiation and energy in particular. And I saw that the megatrend in Australia was one of big, fast solar growth. And I decided to apply for that PhD scholarship. And uh, my wife at the time, my no, wife and uh, fiance at the time said, okay, I'll go. Just got to bring my dog. I didn't know how expensive that was going to be <laughs> when I said yes, but I said, no problem. We'll bring the dog. And so in 2011, I moved to Australia and took up that PhD program. And I'm very glad I did because that future that I quote unquote forecast has really played out. The solar has grown exponentially doubling about every two years in Australia. It now has a really large portfolio of uh, large-scale utility systems to go along with that. And the problems of integrating those renewables have become very acute and need to be solved in unique ways that they haven't been elsewhere because it's new territory. So it's really been a dynamic playground for those fun ideas that I, I wanted to explore in my PhD and now with the company. Obviously, like you got the scholarship was there a, a specific reason that you went to the university that you did other than the scholarship? Uh, I guess what I'm looking for here is I recall there was there were a few folks that were specifically focused on research in this direct, direct application. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. And in terms of the credentials of the university, Australian National University is they like to argue, and there's many cases for arguing this, is really one of the best universities in the world. So it was a premier university with a scholarship opportunity, and there were research organizations in the capital city, Canberra, Australia, where the university is, that were also looking at solar modeling and solar forecasting problems that I had the opportunity to build collaborations with. So that was an absolute sweetener. And I had initially expected to have um, a certain member in my PhD advisor group. Things moved around a bit. Things changed up. There was a bit of turmoil at the beginning, but it ended up working out that I was able to have on my supervisory panel uh, a fairly famous solar scientist in Australia, Andrew Blakers, and uh, another very influential data science machine learning researcher, Bob Williamson, who was leading uh, the national IC. Internet and Communications Technologies Organization. And so these influencers and these big thinkers got to be a part of my PhD because of that move. So yes, there was mentorship there, there was collaborative opportunity, and there was that big shift in the market happening where there was so much solar going in that the exact problems I wanted to study were there and present. So my understanding is as you're building out this uh, PhD thesis, I mean, many, I would suggest that many of our, of our listeners uh, haven't gone through the process of perhaps a PhD thesis. Some have probably done undergrad or, or master's thesis, but you began to build out a model for solar radiation and uh, getting high resolution data. Can you give me a sense of the point in time where you had an aha of 
having really felt like you were cracking the code, you were doing something different that in some way wasn't being recognized in the marketplace yet? I have this very distinct memory of back when I was in Oklahoma and I made that pivot over to studying the solar. Nobody at the university was an expert in solar. And so what I ended up doing, because all these journals from solar energy weren't online yet, is I went up to the upstairs of the dusty library in at the Oklahoma University of Oklahoma there. And I remember the smell of the old journals coming off the shelf and spending summer day after day there and reading these journals. And the names of the folks that were building these models 10, 20 years ago were the same as the ones that were uh, present in the tools being used by the industry. That was interesting to me because the thinking we had applied and developed two decades or more earlier, the models that were developed then were still the ones being used. But here we are in a new era where we have solar radiation data being measured every minute instead of every hour. We have it coming from satellites that are giving us new data every 10 minutes at one kilometer pixel, whereas it used to be every hour at 25 square kilometer pixels. So the data trend is present in many industries. It was also coming along in a way where we had richer data and we had more opportunities to apply that to solar modeling and forecasting. But the models for really using that data and turning it into the useful components of doing solar modeling were old, were outdated. But this new data was there. And so I took what I learned and some of the premise of those modeling tools from 10 to 20 years ago, and I started playing around with higher resolution data sources. And I built a new model and I built three of them. And one of them was called the Engerer 2 model. And this model, you dig right into the details. Its purpose was basically to take a measurement of the whole sky of radiation coming into a single sensor. We call it a pyranometer, a global horizontal irradiance measurement, and splitting it into its two components, the stuff coming straight from the sun and the stuff coming from the rest of the sky. And that's important for solar modeling. And that didn't have any up-to-date models that could do that with one-minute resolution data. I built some new models. And much to my surprise, a big aha moment for me was having somebody I respect in the industry email me shortly after my paper had been published and say, hey, have you seen that this expert in the field that everybody respects has just written a review of 100-plus models all over the world, from data all over the world, and your model was the best. And in fact, your model was the best and it beat the other guy who's, who's everybody thought is the, um, the, the go-to guy for this and it's been in the industry for 30 years. And that really blew me away because I didn't realize the capability I had. And it was a wonderful arc of a story from reading those dusty journals back in Oklahoma over to my PhD in Australia. And that, that was a big moment for me. That's carried on into the company. And I think it reflects one of those moments of aha. And you don't necessarily know you got there until after somebody else went and, and peer reviewed and checked your work like we do in science. Yeah, like we do in science. I love that little, that extra little tag there because the thing that fascinates me about your story is that you are just following curiosity and following questions that come to you of, but why, right? It's like I have a seven-year-old son and he is the eternal, but why 
right? It's like, okay, dad, but why? That seems to me like one of the key characteristics for a good scientist because he's like, okay, I'm going to question the status quo. Okay, this uh, this guy is the is the industry expert for the 30 years, kind of the accepted uh, standard. But what's missing? And the other thing, and I often refer to this, one of my mentors and um, sort of one of those pseudo mentors is James Altucher. And one of his big concepts is the idea of the idea sex, right? This taking something from one industry and pairing it with a problem from another industry. And uh, I think that the the work that you did chasing storms and seeing data through a different lens lends to the curiosity you have about why a particular industry, in this case, uh, renewable energy, perhaps isn't using data formats or, or thought processes in the same way. You mentioned to me that one of the projects you were engaged with for the city of Canberra was actually measuring and modeling more than 12,000 systems across rooftops in the city. Why did that project for you create this mental pivot point? That was actually the final chapter of my thesis. And what I did is I had engaged with this challenge that is present in many energy markets around the world where we have rooftop solar. There's a large amount of it, but it's actually not sending measurement data back to the utility. So they're blind to the amount of solar generation that is occurring in real time, historically, and of course, into the near future. This inability to see it is an issue we call solar visibility in the industry. And I wanted to engage with that challenge and that's specifically one of the aspects of that high-resolution radiation model that I talked about. It created a source of data we could use to model these PV systems. The other thing I did is I started gathering actual measurement data from solar sites, and I came up with a method of using the power output from one site to estimate the power output from another nearby site, even if it was pointed in a different direction, a different capacity, and also to quality control those data streams because they are very dirty. They have all sorts of problems with shading, inverter clipping, a number of different items. And pulling these different modeling steps together, I was able to get to this point where I was kind of creating a heat map, so to speak, of all the different rooftop sites across the city of Canberra, around 12,500, as you just mentioned, and started to be able to model those PV systems, measure it from sites spread across the city. And what was very interesting when I used some of the uh, objective analysis tools and interpolation tools I learned in my master's degree, I actually started to see what appeared to look like cloud cover moving over the city and really beginning to understand how the weather would connect to all those systems ramping down or ramping up their power output and how that the the driving of the meteorological factors is what leads to the solar energy performance. And the variability in that was profound. It was really big. You could go from every PV system in the middle of the day cranking out 90% capacity to 10% capacity in the matter of 30 to 60 minutes across a whole city if you got a thunderstorm or a big, thick cold front moving very quickly. And it became very clear to me that these changes that were happening needed to be mapped back to the actual electricity network. And so that's where I wrapped up the end of the thesis. And of course, the story continues with some further work we'll discuss. But that was a really big moment to be able to do that. And it fulfilled part of a vision I had had when I was thinking about moving to Australia. I wanted to engage with that exact problem. So it was refreshing to work really hard on it and have such a nice, tangible, cool outcome at the end. You 
finish your uh, your thesis, it is to great acclaim and accolade within the academic community. Uh, a couple of questions come up for me there. Like in most cases, the purpose of doing a PhD and going this deep into academia is to stay in academia and be a teacher. And also many folks who perhaps go to seek a higher education degree in another country don't intend to stay and live in that country. So you've broken both of those molds in my book. And it really makes me curious about not only the decisions you made, but how you arrived at them. So help me understand the nature of the time and period that you are occupying, you know, a space in Australia that decide, that made you decide this is the right place I want to stay and keep moving forward. And I wonder how that ties in, if at all, to the business decision you make to exit academia and spin this idea up into a real company. Yeah, these are really important life questions that are a classic example of your expectation meeting with reality. So just like you mentioned, what I had expected as an individual was to go do my PhD and come back to the United States. That had been my intention when I decided to take up a PhD and go to Australia and try that out. But Things don't always work out the way you plan, and you also have to take advantage of the opportunities that are before you. And as I was finishing up my PhD, there actually was a lecturing position that opened up at the school I was a part of in atmospheric science, where I could teach students about the weather. And I love doing that. It's a fantastic engagement for the type of energy and passion that I bring to the equation. I'd always wanted that type of role. I thought it was my dream job. And at the time, it was. So I took advantage of that. And I then signed a contract to stick around for another three years or so after I finished my PhD as a lecturer. And in that role, it actually was an important aspect of creating further opportunity to continue my research. So it came hand in hand with the ability to also go pursue funding from grant bodies that could allow me to take that model I built in my thesis and actually make it something relevant to the utilities and the solar integration challenge that really was my core driving influence. So given that being an, an academic and you had accepted this uh, sort of dream job to stay on as a lecturer and you need to get funding, how do you then decide where to point the spear who to ask for funding from and what to apply that funding towards. For me, the timing was, let's call it auspicious. I was finishing my PhD, delivering my final PhD seminar, and I had one of my panel members, who was that solar scientist I mentioned earlier, Andrew Blakers, say to me after the seminar, amongst other things of positive feedback, that there was a new funding round opening up from the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, ARENA. It's very comparable to the Department of Energy and their solar energy technology program, for example. And you can apply for funding when they open a funding round. And this particular funding round had created the opportunity for research and industry to partner together on a project for something that was applied and had commercial potential. And in that same seminar, I had another mentor, Steve Bloom, from, I think it's now the Smart Energy Council, was previously the Australian Solar Council, say to me, Nick, this is great work. The utilities need this. You got to get out there and start collaborating with them. And those two things came together, influence of mentors, the timing, the funding round, and not only the timing and the tech I had been building, but also the belief from somebody like uh, Professor Blakers that I could lead that and apply for that myself. That's very uncommon for someone of my stature and relative 
relatively novel <laughs> experience, very, very newble, or what's the word, nubile, <laughs> very rookie in terms of the academic space to go for a chief investigator role on a big research project. But because of that encouragement, I went for it. And I knew that I had to swing for the fences and go big. And that was okay with me because I'm very fired up by chasing big, bold ideas. I'm, I'm influenced by the thinkers of like a, a Tom Bilyeu or a Peter Diamandis, right? You know, that really big, juicy stuff. Why not go for it? And I picked up the phone and I worked the relationships I had. And in some cases called our equivalent of the 1-800 numbers for utilities around the country until I was able to get six of them work my way to the engineers, get six of them to give me letters of support for this project. I was successful in getting that project up. And that was a really big opportunity. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And it became really the launching point for the transition of that story into the commercial space, because the, the project was always meant to do that. We're working with industry partners we're digging into real world problems and we are ultimately making a goal of taking technology that's been developed in R&D and, and making it something that's applicable to the real world. We begin that journey outward uh, from academia while still keeping a foot in that camp. And I understand that the segment of that market uh, focusing on distribution service providers is uh, where you got that partnership. You mentioned briefly that you essentially called around the 800 numbers, but how did you develop relationships, especially given that heretofore you're not a biz dev person, you aren't even a chief investigator as the industry might consider it from academia. You're very much um, reaching, sort of punching above your weight. How did you conceptualize building, developing these relationships with these major industry players to partner on this grant process? There's a few characteristics in there that, that need to be a part of your process, and they are persistence and consistency. And we also need to remember that humans respond to things emotionally, and they, they get excited about stuff that's cool and, and technologically driven. And in utilities, they are given the brand of being fairly bureaucratic and risk-adverse but the staff that are working in them, the engineers, the people engaging with the smart energy problems, they aren't. They're individuals. They are, in many cases, just as invested in this clean energy future, caring about their planet, as your listeners are. And so speaking to them from a point of saying, hey, you know, I'm a researcher. We don't necessarily do a good job of transitioning technology out to partners like you, but I, I'm young, I've got this project I'm building, and I've got some really cool technology. Will you at least hear me out? Almost no one said no to that. And then it's really all about communicating clearly. What do you need from them and why should they be interested? What benefit will come to them? And I actually made a one-pager. It was a very simple proposition, what the project was, what we needed from them, what they would get in return. And I stuck a really, really effective visual in there and linked it to a YouTube video where they could watch the solar intermittency unfold in those models I had built. And by combining those different aspects and being persistent and making a clear value proposition to them, that was all really important parts of the strategy. And I'll tell you one key thing that was very important is I didn't ask them for any cash. I just asked them for their 
what we call an in-kind or cost share contribution. Just give me some of your time. Just give me some of your feedback. We can just have calls, just some emails, and we can move it forward from there. And those general characteristics with that very, very important persistence and consistency elements are, are what got us over the line. And there was a lot of no's in there, Nico. There was a lot of no's. And that was discouraging. And sometimes I got a no from one person in the company and still went around to another team in the company and got a yes. I love that too. And that comes back to the persistence, right? It's the idea that, no, I'm pretty sure I've picked the right partner here. I just haven't found the right champion. And uh, it speaks, you know, for me, it speaks to part of the fabric of here at Suncast, as you know, as a listener, one of the things I try to help folks discern is, am I an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur? Do I need to be in a big corporate culture like Mari Kubik, where he can have access to huge fundamental like archives of information and in a wealth of data and, and capital to push his ideas forward and have a big impact? Or am I more of an entrepreneur who is willing to, to step out on my own and create something out of nothing. It's a really important distinction. And it's one that far too many people make too late in their career or rather later in their career than they could have uh, otherwise benefited from it. You, you know, one of the things that also occurs to me is that you're, you are not necessarily the prototypical entrepreneur, but you also didn't have any experience running business and, and you've begun as a lecturer to curate this grant process, but we haven't talked about how and why you decided to spin the business out. I'd love to hear that point of departure, the decision process you went through to decide, do I do this alone? Do I bring in a partner? How do I find that partner? Uh, what am I missing? How do I actually leave academia behind? That's actually a fairly complex journey, and it unfolds over a few different years to really come to that decision of leaving academia behind. But a nice, neat part of the story is how I brought in those skills in the business space. Because as an academic, I had very little idea of how far I needed to go to become a businessman. And it's something that I'm working on very consciously in my personal development is to develop that and foster that and build knowledge and skills in that businessman mindset. Because as an academic throughout my training, it's open, it's sharing, it's free. But business is about capturing value and drawing a hard line and having risk management structures. So it's been a big arc of growth. When I got that research project funded, an important part of what we needed to do was build a new tool for getting the new weather satellite data from the Himawari 8 weather satellite. It was producing this new type of data I described earlier. Very, very rich, high resolution, large amounts of it. And that tool was something we were going to build in this research project. But I found my now business partner, James Luffman, who brought 10 years of experience in the commercial weather space, had taken a sabbatical to build a prototype of that exact tool I just described, and was looking for collaborative opportunities. And he came along just about three months before this project kicked off after we signed the paperwork for the project to get it going. And we realized how well the two visions we had and the resources we had would fit together. And I had envisioned we'd create the company or license the technology at the end of the research project. But instead, because of that meeting and the timing, we founded Soulcast at that moment back in 2016. And 
the founding of that company and bringing it in as a partner on the research project was absolutely one of the best decisions we made for the whole experience. Because what it did is it gave us somebody with accountability to generating revenue, having an operational service, and really answering those tough business questions around how do we capture value? How do we extend our runway? How do we get those sales and early revenue? And where can we find it in interesting and unique ways? And not to mention to write a contract and deal with lawyers and found a company and all the other details that he had experience with that I did not. Nick, one of the things that fascinates me about the discovery process that you are describing, and that isn't readily apparent to anyone who hasn't tried to engage in this process, is the real complexity, stark difference between the world of academia and the world of business. It's very well known that, you know, if you just search MIT or Stanford spin out, there are you know, hundreds, probably thousands of companies and technologies that have begun their life as a university project funded by DOE or, or ARENA and then became a company. I think very few people appreciate, because it's not talked about so often, the complexity of actually engaging in that process. My understanding is that it nearly drove you to the point of just throwing in the towel altogether. Can you help me understand why it is, in fact, so difficult and how that became sort of a forcing function and formative uh, moment for you and your business career? Again, you have done a great job of setting context for something that is very challenging to explore, but very, very important. One of the things that we did at the beginning of this process was found this company and we co-founded it. So now I'm the CTO and co-founder of a company, and I'm in the university as a lecturer and an academic. Now I have two hats to wear. And I underestimated the system's that would need to be put in place for a university to manage that so-called conflict of interest and to also maintain the right perceptibility amongst my staff and colleagues. And I personally underestimated just how much bureaucracy was involved and how much politics that I really should have been proactively chasing to make sure I had the right people informed with the right information and on my side. Because what happens, and there's some really good research on this. And uh, there's a book, I'm dropping the name of the man who wrote it, uh, Exponential Organizations. But he talks about, and you can put this in your show notes perhaps, but he talks about this concept of why it's so hard for big companies to innovate. And it's the same thing applies to universities. It's because once you have a separate group trying to forge into new space and try new ideas, they are still surrounded by and subject to the same systems that everything else in the university is or in the company is. And they start to create strain and push out boundaries and not fit in to the status quo. That's exactly where we started to find ourselves, trying to work with industry, create technology, uh, talk about building revenue, thinking about how we're going to transition partners into customers after the end of the project. And it starts to look like instead of being a teammate in the university that I'm thinking about myself and making money uh, to anyone who's looking at that process. And so everything starts to be critically reviewed in a difficult way. And that's not a unique experience for somebody who's trying to do something new in a big company or in a university. And what happens, he calls it the immune system attacking that new entity. Because something like university is so risk adverse, 
and needs to maintain its sense and its semblance in society of being this very independent and trustworthy place, it's very, very scared of what something like a new young company might do, particularly somebody trying to wear two hats. Not only that, but we are trying to run a research project that has industry partners, needs specialized contracts, is bringing money in and out in different ways. And that's not the way that the systems are set up. Universities are set up to win as much grant funding as possible and to publish as many papers as possible so that they have a pipeline built up around that to make that pipeline as big as possible. Well, all of a sudden, we have a funny grant from this interesting funding agency with industry partners, and we don't fit into that mold. Not only the bureaucratic research system, but also the legal system and the uh, school system itself. So there's all these places you start to create strain, giving people extra work they have to do. And all the while you are look like this business person who's out there to make a dollar for themselves rather than to follow the same mission of the university to share knowledge and be that open uh, value sharing type academic. So it really creates a difficult spot to be in as an entrepreneur. It doesn't mean there's not value in it. It definitely helped bootstrap up the company. It helped provide us early revenue. It gave us important partners. It developed valuable intellectual property, but it was very, very difficult. And I did actually at one point nearly resign my job because it was so hard. And I had advice from a staff counselor to do so, but I'm sure you'd like to know what kept me in. It was my teammates and it was those industry partners that had written those letters of support and believed in what we were doing that made me come back and stick it out. And I'm, I'm very glad that I did. And a part of that journey and getting through challenge, very difficult circumstances, when even other people are telling you to quit, is another important fundamental characteristic, I think, of entrepreneurship. And that is the ability to have a mission that is bigger than yourself something that can emotionally guide and drive you because it will get hard. It will take you to the point of feeling like you want to quit. And for me at that point in time, it was the team members around me and the people who collectively believed in the vision of what we were trying to achieve that got me through. And to this day, some of those same team members that were at the university have now come into the company and that's only brought us closer. So struggle, is a part of the journey, but that team aspect and that mission you're chasing together is what you need to rely on when you're sitting in the spot where it's the deepest, darkest hole. When you and James ultimately were successful at uh, spinning the company out, and you clearly have, did you bring along team members immediately? And like, what's the growth path been of the company? Remind, uh, remind us how long it's been around now and roughly the size of the company now to the extent that you're comfortable talking about that. I'm really just curious, like as you became a formal company, that process of building the team is what I want to get into next. The challenge of kind of sitting in those two roles was unique only to myself. No one else in the team that we had built had those kind of difficulties. We had researchers, postdoctoral researchers, um, project management resources that sat on the university side. And then the company, which was its own entity in its own right, was already fully formed and running alongside that project at the same time. So we had our first staff member who's gone on to become an absolutely crucial part of the company, helped build all 
all the infrastructure that we operate. He joined the company from nearly the outset, just two months after we founded it. And then my business partner, James, was able to come into the company full time some months after we made some of our first sales. And the process of going from that core team of two to our now team of 10 looking for number 11 was a gradual increasing of the revenue and also a process of winning a few more of those applied research grants, which is what I casually refer to myself as an expert at doing these days, and finding opportunities to grow the technology into adjacent spaces. So a combination of growing the revenue, bringing in more research funding was the way that we have grown the team to where it is now. And the process of me transitioning out of the university was a partial one at first, where I was half-time, roughly half-time at both entities, to coming full-time at the end of my contract in the middle of 2019. And at that time, we brought one of the software development team members from the ANU fairly seamlessly over into Soulcast because that person was such a valuable team member at that point after getting so uh, embedded with the technology and the partners that we were trying to now transition into being customers. So that element of having the company running alongside in its own right allowed it to build resources beyond what was initially there just from that first research project and then allow myself and another staff member from the ENU to transition into the company full-time at the conclusion of that first project we discussed. You know, every commercial solar opportunity counts. So why lose that sale to high demand charges? Did you know that you can offer up to 30% in demand charge savings at a tenth of the cost of installing a battery? With DemandX, the innovative new demand charge reduction software from Extensible Energy, your client can boost ROI and reduce payback time without all the expense. And as a Suncast listener, you can get a free demand charge analysis by going to extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. And while you're there, check out three recent case studies on how this easy to install software is a win-win for you and your commercial solar clients. DemandX works for office buildings, retail, churches, and more. See for yourself at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. I understand that you guys are revenue positive, which congratulations, that's a, that's a huge milestone for any business. Are you at liberty to talk about the scope and scale of the business and uh, where you're at with revenue numbers, things like that? You can think of it in terms of headcount, right? So if mm-hmm. you look at the kind of core team that we have, that is a team of roughly, let's call it six to eight people for a little bit of ambiguity in there. A typical person in the data science software development space will cost you around 150 grand a year. And so to be able to fund that core team with our customer base, you can do some forward projection on the math not going to discuss revenue numbers directly because it's a private company, but um, it gives you a sense of what you have to achieve in order to have a core team of highly skilled people who are appropriately remunerated. And that is not a process that happens overnight. It is a continual chasing of new opportunities and landing those new opportunities through hard-won competitive work that allows you to build that type of revenue to sustain that core team. You know, one thing that stands out to me is it's, it takes a certain type of personality and uh, intellect and desire and drive to start a company. There are kind of two different styles of leader. There is the leader who 
generally uh, always considers that they're the most knowledgeable person in the room and they kind of stay with the company forever and are always at the top of the totem pole. And then there's the servant leader, which I perceive you to be, who recognizes their intellect, recognizes that it was their willingness and ability to apply very hard math in this case to create something out of nothing that justified creating a business. My sense is that you might not be considered perhaps the most knowledgeable person on the team in terms of understanding exactly what your product does today compared with the day that you wrote the paper that got you sort of the notoriety as the best model in the world on this topic. How does that transition sit with you, that process of sort of releasing the need to be the knowledge base of the product? It is not something you expect as an entrepreneur or specifically as a chief technology officer. You think of yourself as being the most knowledgeable on all of your technology. But as the company grows, you have to relinquish authority and expertise to other team members because you simply don't have the bandwidth to do it all. And what I have observed as a leader in the team is that that is really actually fulfilling for the staff members to feel that ownership and to be acknowledged as an expert and turned to for their input. And that's very much how we work as a team. It's a teamwork effort. Both James and I have our own leadership styles. I'm certainly on the aspect that you talked about earlier in terms of the viewing people as assets and speaking to them and understanding what drives them emotionally. And James compliments me very nicely in that he's the top level leader who can set the vision and take us forward and make sure we do everything on time. And as I've transitioned towards somebody who knows less about our technology stack and less about our data models, I've become more of the what we could call perhaps the evangelizer or the communications expert of the team telling our story and reaching out to customers and seeing where we should go next based on their feedback and how we can serve them better. And that has been difficult for me to let go of the coding and let go of being the expert on the models. But I can still turn back to that team member that's working on a specific thing and understand what I need to know in order to communicate that to our potential clients and our user base and to know where we should go next with that resource. And as I have transitioned to that, into that more mature role as a leader, I've begun to recognize that that's actually really common and that I see other leaders for big companies on stage talking about their company and selling the vision. And I know that they aren't the expert on the particular database or the instance type that sits on Amazon Web Services that makes all of it work or what model is providing the output that does so damn well in comparison to your competition. It is a part of transitioning for any founder and executive in a company. And it's not something I expected. But it's something that people should be comfortable with, and it's a sign of maturity. Listening to the way that you have expounded on the various series of questions that we've explored here over the, the past 20 or so minutes, I know that this is one of those interviews that I'm going to share uh, with a lot of my coaching clients, uh, with a lot of my consulting clients, because I feel like you've been able to bottle some of the experience that they are going through. And I'm really grateful for that. So thank you for being open and thoughtful about the way that you've expressed your own journey in, in that process. I want to turn the corner here a bit about the very nature of business that you've created. 
it's not lost on anyone here who've, who's been in the solar or wind space that three tier and you know recent guests uh, other recent guests like claiming power research have long had a leadership's place in the industry one might ask why soulcast is it just because they're in australia but one of the things that really fascinates me is that you know one of your biggest clients is right here in the united states where you know right in my home state uh you know to the extent that you're willing to talk about that customer that's great we'll probably get into some of the fun things that you're doing with them but if it's true that existing companies like Solar GIS, Clean Power Research, Three Tier, many others are doing good work, that your model in some way complements, what is the core IP that your company represents that sets you apart in the industry? I have a sense that it ties back to this concept of big data, ties back to this concept of aggregation and, as you put it, mo- modeling that it goes beyond just create, just figuring out the number of uh, of the of the exact irradiance or specific irradiance uh, or the the pixelation uh, or the height from ground. Can you help unpack that for me and maybe tie it back to maybe a use case? With pleasure. There's a bigger question that you're starting to ask here, and then we zoom down into a detail. So let me start with the bigger picture. There's other providers. There are well-known services in this space that exist already. So why enter with a company into a space that has multiple offerings in it already? There's one of my mentors in this space, and I recently saw him in Brisbane, is Tom Bilyeu. And he's gone on to do an excellent job with his media company, Impact Theory, which is a great coaching resource and a motivation resource your listeners would probably appreciate. But when I saw him, he was speaking about his journey founding Quest Nutrition, which was a protein bar company. The last thing anybody needed was another protein bar when they started that company. And he said, to people doubting him, there's always room for the best. And that really speaks to me and it should speak to your listeners because if you are passion driven and you can see potential and opportunity, it doesn't matter if the market has offerings, there's always room for the best. And so that is the spirit in which we have entered this market. And to be the best, what do you have to do? You have to think of things from a new angle and with new resources. And that is exactly what we've done to create differentiation. We founded the company in 2016. Many of those companies you mentioned were founded a decade or more before. What is our key advantage? We now have cloud computing at scale. We now have brand new weather satellites giving us very high resolution data and very large volumes. And we have a mature landscape for APIs, application programming interfaces, that can send data not just to the client, but accept it back. So we've really worked on, from the beginning, achieving a global scale and doing that with the best technologies we can leverage in the IT space and making sure that the communication for the data we provide is fast, low latency, easy, and can work in two directions. So working down the specific details, what does that end up looking like in the output data product? Well, what we've been able to achieve is that we have one API for the data to be delivered to the client from for every location around the world. Increasingly, the companies in the energy space that are operating solar farm assets, for example, are succeeding in one market and then looking overseas. They don't need to have an individualized solution for every region they're in. They are global companies. They need a global solution. 
So that is how we've approached it. And one of the key differentiators is this global coverage. The other thing is rapidly updating the data and the forecasts. That's only possible because of using Amazon Web Services and having flexible instances online that get bigger and smaller as demand changes, that have redundancy and can store really, really big volumes of data. This is actually a a quote unquote big data problem. And I don't use it as a buzzword. We gather up to 10 terabytes of data from a single weather satellite each month. And we have five of them to make that global data set possible. And then we take that data, we have to process it on the fly very, very quickly, quality control it, run radiation conversion algorithms on it to figure out where clouds are, how thick they are, how much solar radiation is coming through them, whether or not there's aerosols like dust, smoke, pollution in the way and factoring in their influence. Do that very quickly and not only provide that data as a real-time availability opportunity for companies to leverage, but also predict into the future what's going to happen next in the next five minutes, 15 minutes, hour, out to the next seven days. And making those forecasts, the unique thing about forecasting is it is something that needs to be done repeatedly over and over again. Every time there's new data, there's a new forecast. And it's not good enough to just make one forecast because the weather isn't isn't predictable. It's inherently stochastic. It's inherently chaotic. So you have to make a probability of what's going to happen. So we have to run not just one forecast. We run 18 different forecasts every five minutes all around the world. It's 600 million forecasts an hour. It's a huge amount of data. And you're doing that every five minutes. So being able to come from that infrastructure viewpoint of the global coverage, rapidly updating the data, and then making it easily available in a way that people can understand it and learn how to integrate with it. Those three things are what differentiate us from that competition. And they come with the spirit of there's always room for the best. And the validations that we've done on both our historical data sets and those forecasting data sets and those done by many of our now customers back that up. And so that's where we sit in this space. I have tremendous respect for those other companies and many of the scientists who have made their work possible and they fill a vital role and there's room for many players, but we didn't let that discourage us. And we sit in that landscape now with those new capabilities. And that's what allows us to differentiate ourselves. Given that it's not lost on the incumbents in the market, that these aspects of development are real and available, AWS, et cetera. I mean, I'll point out that Jeff at Clean Bio Research came from Microsoft. He lives in uh, in Seattle, certainly uh, within his capability to apply uh, what you are discussing and to, and to wrap uh, their business around it. Nonetheless, I hear from you that you, the way you scale is different than others, which lends me to think, Does this have to be designed in from the beginning of the business as a part of its DNA versus being bolted on to existing data sets and frameworks? I would argue that it does. And in particular, one of the things that happens is, let's break this down into a nice illustration. You have algorithms that run on your data sets and you know how they perform. They have good scientific basis for that, but you're learning from your customers or from recently available measurement data, that there's some issues and you'd like to improve those algorithms. Doing that improvement and deploying those to your operable servers and getting them to run is one aspect of that problem. You now also have to rebuild all of that historical data. You have to version your data set. You have to communicate that downstream to your customers. 
being able to quickly deploy and iterate and improve is not something you can do on the legacy systems that most of these other folks operate. If you're running a system you built 10 years on ago on Java and you have data sets that sit on FTP servers, you have to rebuild that entire data set every time you want to make an algorithm change. That's not something that we do. We do a lot of our computations on the fly. They're built so that you make a request of the data service, it goes and builds that data from the algorithms directly and then delivers it to you from the raw pieces of data at the outset. So it's a different approach to developing the data that we're actually delivering that allows a nimbleness that's not present in in other areas. Who is the customer for you? What's the commercial opportunity applied to this? Obviously, it's something that the next eras and uh, light source BPs and Aitman Energies of the world would uh, would want and L and others. But I imagine, as you pointed out earlier, in the very instance that this business idea came to fruition, utilities should be logical customers. I'm curious, how far down the innovation trail can we forecast, to use your word, the applicability of this, not only to solar radiation, but also to smart home, to bi-directional charging, to load shifting with batteries. This seems like a technology that as fast as you are saying it is, means real-time awareness about what's happening on a grid that can drive decision-making at a utility and a service provider level. I love the future vision you've painted there, Nico, and and I'll work toward that from the basics. From the perspective of the core customers for live and forecasting data, they are most often those who are operating and managing solar farms, utilities and uh, grid operators who need to have that solar visibility or to create load forecasts. And then looking backward on the historical data, it becomes relevant to solar farm developers and also the independent engineers who are creating reports for those who'd like to finance a solar farm or acquire a solar farm. So let me go into a bit more detail on those two fronts. On the historical data side, it's important to have a clear picture of what the climate or the typical meteorological year, TMY, we call it in the industry, what that data looks like at a given location. So you can form a view of what your revenue is going to be like at that asset and understand not only just a projection of the, the median, but also probability scenarios for a particularly sunny year or a moderately sunny year and understand how that might impact the operational revenue that you generate quarter by quarter, year by year. And so this aspect of creating historical data and making that available for quote unquote bankability studies and the development of solar farms and the financing of solar farms is where you create value for those customers. On the utility scale and operations of solar farm side, Many solar farms around the world, and this is an increasing trend, are being required by their grid operator to submit an energy generation forecast. It might be five minutes ahead, like it is in Australia now. It might be 15 minutes ahead, like it is in India. Or it might be a day-ahead unit commitment, like it is in most of the United States. The trend is increasingly pushing it toward better, higher resolution forecasts at shorter timeframes as more renewables enter the grid because it becomes really important for balancing supply and demand. So very often, 
solar farm operators are required to submit that data. And it's not, as we've discussed, it's not an easy thing to build in-house. And we've seen folks attempt to do that, build teams, invest a lot of money, and then dissolve those teams across the industry more than once. It's very challenging to do. So it's better to go and acquire that answer than try to get it yourself. For the grid operators, big utilities, you alluded to a customer earlier, didn't name them, Duke Energy in the United States, uh, one of our customers. They have to develop every day and continually update a supply and demand forecast. And the very interesting thing about supply and demand and solar energy is that utility scale solar sits on the supply side, but that rooftop solar that we discussed earlier, a distributed energy resource asset, it sits on the demand side. It's actually impacting what demand looks like to the utility. And so a Duke Energy or uh, Australian energy market operator or Thai Power in Vietnam, or excuse me, in Taiwan, or EVN in Vietnam, these big customers that we have, they need to do both sides of the equation in order to match supply and demand. What will come from the large-scale solar assets? How will the demand be changed by the distributed energy resource from rooftop solar? And both of those require good knowledge of the cloud cover, how much solar radiation is making it through, and how much power will be generated by the PV systems operating under that cloud cover. So we sell them that data as a continual feed of the latest forecast based on the latest weather satellite information. And they, of course, acquire that data from us through that API I mentioned earlier. And the API is what makes a whole new area of things that are very exciting possible. We actually give away solar forecasts for homeowners absolutely for free. If you have solar on your rooftop, you can get a solar forecast customized to your site from our API for free. It's something we give away to support those who are building the solar power feature on their rooftop. It's this API that makes it possible to send data for thousands of sites at once or a single site at once, and it's very scalable. So when you start having this API, they can tell you how much solar radiation is going to be available or specifically how much power is going to be generated by a solar PV system. And it's available to anyone and everyone who wants to come up, sign up and try it. It allows a whole bunch of new exciting things to show up. We've got folks who use it for solar powered boats or solar car races. But we also, on the distributed energy management side, have organizations that are using it to manage the uh, charging and dispatching of a home battery in concert with the solar energy generation because it becomes part of that optimization problem. I'm sure there's some cool ideas you would be able to come up with where this type of data would fit in. And it's just reflecting the reality that many of us would acknowledge this very readily, weather impacts everything. And whether it's going to be cloudy, rainy, rainy here and cloudy, it impacts how things happen in the environment, the decisions you make all the time. And increasingly with solar being a part of the equation, behaviors are being modified around how much solar energy is available. It is fascinating to think about the multiplicity of uh, business offering, business model, the freemium aspect of how you integrate data. It seems to me like Soulcast, as I mentioned before, is a company waiting to be acquired. I just can't imagine the asset value of what you've created to certain entities is going to be incredibly, incredibly palpable and, and salient. I have a sense that 
there are uh, hopefully listeners of Suncast that didn't know about your company before and are going to want to reach out to you. We'll certainly give them the opportunity to do that before we do. So I want to tap in a bit to some of the uh, earned wisdom that you've gained uh, having created and uh, you know stood up and now commercialized this profitable business. What would you say are some of the key lessons and takeaways that you've had uh, ingrained in you from important mentors. You mentioned Tom Bilyeu, but what other lessons stick with you from mentors in your life or career? You've made a really great discussion point around the resources that are available to us today. And being able to go on the internet and connect with a YouTube following and find something that speaks to you and fires you up and really that you identify with is an important part of this mentorship and shaping your thinking. There's a lot of titans in the field whom you can start to use to shape your thinking from an early level, but I think you get increasingly niche and there's there's no shame in that. Um, finding a community online who shares some of those values or uh, following somebody online who is a bit more focused in on what you care about and maybe you identify with is a tremendous resource. So from that big picture, zooming in on some things that have been really important for me, one of the things that I had when I lived in Oklahoma is I actually started going to a uh, Zen monastery that was formed there. And I learned how to meditate. Uh, you mentioned earlier, I'm a bit of a biohacker. I refer to the Buddha as the, the OG of biohacking because learning how to observe your mind and understanding your thoughts and being able to position yourself as separate from them and seeing what you may choose to believe about yourself or what thought you may choose to follow in on and becoming a more responsive individual to your mindscape rather than a reactive one is absolutely fundamental to personal development in my view and has benefited me tremendously. So I meditate every morning. There's lots of cool tech you can use to get started. I strongly and firmly recommend that. So given that we're both meditators and take that as a fundamental way to reconstruct your present reality, are there other mechanical experiments that you've engaged in beyond meditation that have had great efficacy in either thinking or quality of life or directly impact what you believe to be your longevity? That's certainly the case. And I had a very fundamental experience when my son was born and I also share this on my website, where my wife was actually diagnosed with a very rare cancer 30 minutes after my son was born. She had a tumor on her ovary that they knew about. It ended up being all over her body. Very, very traumatic experience. She's well today, thanks to the miracles of medicine. And I don't care to go too deeply into that because it's not the focus of what we're trying to discuss. But that taught me about the reality of medicine and technology meeting with disease in our body. And what I found through my research is actually we have the technological capability to scan our body head to toe, sample our blood, sequence our genome, and deeply understand our state of wellness from the inside out and projected into the future what our risk is. And so I realized that I was actually able to access technologies with a bit of capital resource. They're not super cheap yet, but they're becoming more inexpensive all the time that would assess my wellness at a deeper level and give me the confidence to know that I was cancer-free 
and that I know what my risks are and how, what behaviors I might need to change to prevent things like metabolic disease, like diabetes, or cardiovascular disease, like most people think of heart attacks or stroke. And that way of collecting data and leveraging technology to inform myself about my state of well-being and change my lifestyle in response to that, it has something that's evolved into Longevity Blog and was motivated by that very primal experience of you know nearly losing my wife, having these terrible surgeries and treatments she had to go through, and teaching me about where I didn't want to be and what responsibility I had to take on myself to make sure that I was well and just what resources are out there to do so. And now I've become very passionate about helping others know about those things, just as I have with solar energy. Uh, in the past, I'm looking forward to the future. There is a tremendous future for longevity technologies to keep us healthy, help us live longer, help us live better. And it's something that gives me excitement and has turned into a bit of a hobby. Yeah. Well, I know that you and I have talked a bit about getting you started on podcasting. Obviously, you've got a blog, but I personally believe that you have a bright future given your history as an academic and a lecturer in front of a camera. I would love to see some of the ways that you use multimedia to actually provide graphical representation of the things that you're learning and the, and the complex application of those ideas to not just life business. I think that that's going to be a phenomenal thing that I will get to see as you evolve in, uh, in your understanding of them. One of the questions that I have outstanding from a previous conversation that I'm just personally curious to, to ask is, what do you know about through these experiments that I and our listeners likely have no idea exists and would possibly blow my mind? Aging is not a set process. We are learning that getting older is the result of several different processes that we are increasingly understanding and now learning how to measure as a process and mitigate. And I'll give you an example of a cool experiment I'm doing right now. I'm working with a company in the UK called Chronomics. They are measuring not my genome, but my epigenome. It is the process of your DNA being expressed is controlled by your epigenome. And there's these little things called methyl groups that sit on your epigenome and they actually control the expression of your DNA. They're very fundamental to your, your body's state. They tell cells, stem cells, what to become, uh, whether they should be a skin cell, whether they should be epithelial cells in your digestive tract, neurons, they form that expression. But as you age, you start to get these methyl groups in strange and different places where they don't necessarily belong. Well, now we actually have the technology to figure out where those groupings are and assess why that damage occurred. And I think that is the first steps of figuring out how to repair that damage or reverse that damage. And there's early evidence that shows by doing certain things like uh, regenerating our thymus or by uh, extending our telomeres and other aspects of longevity that is possible to make you age backwards. It's an emerging space. Of course, there's a lot of risk. There's plenty of reason to be skeptical. But Nico, I think you could live to be 150. I really believe that those technologies are coming. I'm making a forecast. That's why I care about this stuff. That's absolutely transformational. And it will be a trillion dollar market in 10 years from now, in my view. 
for anyone who has had this conversation with me, they know that I have decided to live to 120. And uh, it's because there's a book I read called I've Decided to Live to 120. That is a fantastic book on exactly what you're talking about. It doesn't go into extending telomeres, which kudos to my friend Dave Flory for explaining what telomeres are to me so that I'm not completely ignorant in this conversation. But I take back what I said earlier. I would argue that you're probably less a follower of Dave Asprey than Ben Greenfield. And in that regard, I think he would give him run for his money in this space, or at least would be, I'm sure, fascinated spending time with him. Ben being the only person I know who uh, has um, documented the way that he has, as he put it, reversed aging and and both um, not only just feels, but his biometric markers suggest that he is younger now than he was when he started. I am almost to the point of like, emotional about what you just said, because as you and I know, as you know, because we've talked about it and some folks who are listeners here know, I struggle with uh, something that presented itself genetically this year uh, in that I have Crohn's disease and uh, Crohn's disease is thought to be a DNA expression, as you put it, that can become activated and sometimes it can remain inactive for the entirety of your life. And it's very odd, actually, that I at 40 years old would would express or activate this gene is what you're suggesting that this company in the UK, for example, could in some way study my epigenome in a way that would allow me to experiment in repairing the damage that in some way activated the Crohn's disease and reverse it. That is where this is headed and that will become reality soon. We are not there yet, but the breakthrough is this company like Chronomics and others who are able to look at the epigenome and attribute damage in your you know, epigen- epigenomic expression where it should and shouldn't be. And so the possibility to be able to do things like turn that DNA off with a genetic therapy is certainly on the horizon or possibly to repair the methylation on that epigenome, certainly on the horizon. So I think folks like yourself who suffer from diseases that are longstanding and chronic are certainly likely to benefit from these amazing advancements in technology because that is exactly where the longevity technologies can get funding and approval to advance um, the technology because the FDA recognizes that disease. They will fund the research to solve it. And so that is the pathway we're going down. I am, uh, to say the least, fascinated by this now and love how this conversation has unfolded uh, around the many corners that we have peered and just genuinely enthralled with the deep level of thinking and not only thinking, but understanding you have expressed and gained uh, and certainly given to us uh, across a wide range of topics from solar to telomeres. One of the ways I know that you like to stay ahead of your peers is through reading. I believe that readers are leaders, as you know, and you've mentioned uh, one book, Exponential Organizations. I'd love to hear if there are any other books or perhaps blogs or YouTube channels that you recommend or gift to others and why they matter to you. What has unfolded for me is a lot of reading and a lot of assimilating information from online content that is specific to things that I care about. But I say to folks that there are many avenues you could go down and you might almost impulsively follow them. You might go down a topic about um, managing your stress or do getting things done better. But do you know why you're stressed or why you want to do more things? Do you understand the value set that you operate from? 
Do you know the difference between a valuable a value and a principle? Can you enumerate principles and values? And so I like to take this back to some of the very fundamental books that people probably have heard of before. Um, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, The 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene, Influence by Robert Cialdini. Some of these books have done a great job of distilling down how people work, why they work, where our values come from, what human principles are, and we need to operate from that space. I need to be able to know in this really complex world, accelerating technology, more information I can possibly uh, absorb and can frankly feel overwhelmed by, how do I navigate that? I need to know what my values are, I need to know what human principles are, and I need to know what laws govern those. So start at the fundamentals, do that hard work, get out a notebook, sit there with a blank piece of paper and and allow uh, things to come onto that page that speak to you and ca- you care about. Uh, I've actually run students through an exercise like this before in my class to help them decide what they wanted to do a final thesis project on. What are you curious about? What do you care about? And where are your skills? Where do those overlap? This can help you go down the, the route that'll be the most promising for you, but you got to do some of that fundamental work with you know, a blank piece of paper in front of you to really look inside yourself uh, and to know how to do that. Some of the books I mentioned are good tools. I am fascinated at, at another level now because instead of taking the channel, uh, I'm going to tell you what's influenced me, turned the tables and said, I'm going to challenge you to determine why you want to be influenced figure out what it is that you need to learn and then find the medium based on your personality style. I'm interpreting here that is going to help you address in the, in an efficient manner, the weakness uh, or deficiency you have around the skills that you want to improve. The three books that you've listed are fundamental. They're definitely in my catalog of must reads for anyone in any, in any um, business or professional category, seven habits of highly effective people, 48 laws of power and influence by Cialdini. I mean, influence in and of itself is one of the seminal books on understanding consumer psychology and understanding and being able to see what companies are doing to try and grab your attention. And also, in some ways, teach you how to do it for yourself and for your business. So I think it's a very, very, very important book. I agree with you that uh, folks, if they haven't read it, should definitely queue it up. Well, Nick, this has been one of the more expansive and, uh, dare I say, dynamic conversations that I've had in a long time on Suncast, and I'm really grateful for it. I'm sure that others feel the same. And if they were so motivated, how would folks find more of you, reach out to you, get to know you better. Yeah, if folks are interested in that longevity biohacking space, they can find that on my website, uh, just nickanger.org. I think you're going to link to the longevity blog. That's a fun new project that I'm exploring, and I like the feedback that people give me. So uh, it helps shape what we do next. If you want to just simply connect on social media, just Nick Engerer, N-I-C-K-E-N-G-E-R-E-R at, on Instagram and Twitter. You can also find me on LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. It's a great networking tool. So please add me there. And you can also go to learn more about Soulcast at Soulcast, S-O-L-C-A-S-T.com and find a bunch of free tools on there, including one of my favorites, which is our live animation solar radiation maps, where you can see how the solar radiation unfolded on a given day all around the world. And as a weather junkie, I love looking at those maps. So there's some fun stuff for people to follow up on. 
Well, Nick, I, for one, I'm going to check out that free animation tool and uh, many other of the goodies that you have to unpack over at soulcast.com. But let's end today, as we always do, with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I answered that question in a way with the Asian challenge, but let's talk about it in terms of solar. We have seen it historically, and it's evident in the data. Solar is an exponential technology. Its price is continuing to drop faster than anybody can predict. (laughs) It continues to try to predict and it keeps going lower. And its deployment around the world is continuing to rise. So what we need to start thinking about is how would we as humans interacting with electricity, it be willing to compromise to have a renewable energy grid? Because I'm telling you right now, it doesn't matter how much wind, how much solar you put out there, we're still going to need the types of generation that come from gas peaking or coal power plants or nuclear energy to meet the electricity we need around the world based on our current behaviors. So I'm very excited to see, and I think there will be many examples of this five, 10 years from now, where there are communities of people who have said, we're willing to change how we consume electricity based on what the weather as fuel is going to give us today and tomorrow. And I believe that the communities that do that will be some of the most successful in fulfilling that renewable energy future that many of us get excited about. And of course, I call the solar powered future because, well, solar is the best, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. What a fascinating view of the future. Uh, And I look uh, forward to finding those pockets of communities. Hopefully they will be very large communities of people, as you suggest. And we'll certainly be tracking it here on Suncast. Mr. Nick Ingerer, Dr. Nick Ingerer, is the co-founder and chief technology officer for Soulcast, a revolutionary new forecast and meteorology tool and technology being used by companies like Duke to help others like you and I decide how and where to place assets, utilize assets, and make better decisions. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. This has been one of the more enjoyable forays into this environment of technology that I've had in a long time. My pleasure. Thanks to all the solar warriors who listened. Well, all right, warriors, I hope that you are prepared more than ever to take on the energy transition with renewed vigor, strength, and tactical advice. This conversation, as I mentioned a couple of times, took on so many dimensions that I didn't really anticipate. And that's one of the things I love about Nick. He is an expansive thinker. My mind is reeling with the possibilities as I think about all the ways that I can put his practical advice to work for my business and my clients. And I'd really love to hear, and I'm sure he would too, what were your takeaways? As he mentioned, please find us on LinkedIn. I nearly always post on LinkedIn about these episodes. So it's simple for you to just drop a comment in that post, it'd be amazing. I know that Nick will be commenting or at least thanking us for sharing his episode. And hey, if you would share it, we'd even be more humbled and honored and grateful for that because it helps others discover this phenomenal information. If you're eager to keep learning, then you like me and Nick and other fellow Philomaths in the world can find these resources and highlights from this and every other discussion on Suncast over at my Suncast. We also link to the social media links that we were just discussing, the book recommendations, and so much more. And hey, while you're there, please take a couple more minutes out of your precious time and give us your feedback in our listener survey. 
If you would do that, it truly helps us know what you're looking for so that we can better serve you. Take the survey again at mysuncast.com. I do hope you'll tune in next week for more inspiring and tactical advice as Tuesdays, we feature short form episodes we call Tactical Tuesdays, where we introduce you to subject matter experts in 20 to 30 minute bursts designed to give you specific information that at the very least makes you more interesting in the next dinner conversation. And on Thursdays, we have our longer form conversations like we just experienced with founders, executives, change makers, and thought leaders in the clean economy. We explore their origin stories, glean from their on-the-ground insights and advice, and we delve into their personal business and life hacks, all so that you can level up your game and be well-equipped for the journey from apprentice to master. And lastly, hey, if you are on that journey and you're a newbie in this industry, I'd really encourage you to join our free Facebook group, The Energy Guild to network with hundreds of other clean energy professionals and get access to exclusive live trainings, mentorship, and guild-only guides and more. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.